Will you please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, Romans 8. You'll need a Bible to follow along, so these brothers have some. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, get their attention, and they'll give you one of those that's marked for you at Romans chapter 8. Romans 8. And I wanted to uh, just thank a couple of people before we get into our message that participate in our worship service and make it worshipful for us every week. I mentioned a bit earlier that today is the last day that we're going to have the announcements, the verbal announcements for our worship service. Uh, Larry has been doing that for several years for us. He does a tremendous job with that and getting through those uh, as quickly as, as he can. So we're not eliminating those because of Larry. We're just eliminating them for the reason that I gave. So I wanted to publicly thank Larry for doing that for us. And then also to thank the people who just left here the music folks, they do a terrific job for us every week in bringing us to and inviting us to worship the Lord. So if you agree with me, let's thank them for their ministry to us, all right? And I'm told that about half of that group of eight are going to be gone next week. Now, they're not on strike or anything. But it just happens that they're going to be gone. So we'll, see, we'll, mu- we'll mumble through it uh, next week, and it'll still be worship as unto the Lord. But we'll probably uh, remember how much we appreciate them when they're gone uh, as well. But they'll be back in, uh, all intact in a couple of weeks. Romans chapter 8. How you experience something is dependent on your preparation for it. How you experience something is dependent on your preparation for it. For example, if something happens to you that you were totally unprepared for, you'll be startled or you'll be afraid or you'll be overjoyed depending on what it is. If you thought you were alone at home and then someone behind you says a simple hello, you'll be both startled and afraid. If you go to work and you find out that your boss has given you a significant raise, you'll be overjoyed. How you experience something is dependent on your preparation for it. If you know others are in the house, your family members with whom you're familiar, and then someone speaks to you, there's going to be no adrenaline rush. If your company always gives bonuses at the same time every year, you'll be glad, of course, to get the check, but not the same emotion as getting an unexpected gift. For the last several years we've made a point to attend one Michigan football home game each year in the big house at Ann Arbor. Now, how the 110,000 fans experience it is largely determined by how they prepare for it. You've generally bought tickets well in advance, as those are pretty scarce. You plan your entire day around that since it's a a three-and-a-half-hour game. It's an hour to park and get to the stadium, walk to the stadium, and another hour or two to simply exit and get back on the freeway with the other 909,000 people. But when the game day comes, you're prepared and you're geeked. You've thought about it for at least a few times during the week. You've checked the weather to find out what you need to wear. You looked at the record of the opponent to get an idea of what to expect from the game and so on. The excitement is enhanced by the fact that you don't do this very often, even if you have season tickets. 
And that's because there are only 12 regular season college football games a year. And depending on the schedule, you'll have only five, six, or seven of those games at home. This year it's six. So it's a special occasion if for no other reason it doesn't happen often. But for things and people that you see and hear and experience often, that preparation needs to be even more deliberate and intentional. Seeing a relative that you've been apart from for many years gets a different reaction from seeing your family members every morning. Now that's understandable and it's fine, but that familiarity can cause us to fail to communicate to those in our family how we really feel about them as they're around us on a regular basis. We need to think about and be sure to communicate to those closest to us how much we love and appreciate them. Because seeing them every day and seeing them multiple times a day can cause us to take that great gift for granted. That principle, how you experience something is dependent on your preparation for it. It's true in everything that we do and everything we encounter, including when we come face to face with the truths of the Word of God. How you experience those truths depends on your preparation for them. We come together each week, 52 times a year, not six. And we do basically the same thing. And many of us have been doing this literally our entire lives, and most of us have not for our entire lives, for many years at least. Our experience on Sunday... And really, any time we open God's Word, it can, if we're not careful, become like the danger of taking our families for granted. We hear it over and over, and it loses its punch. This causes preachers to try to compensate by being exciting so that we can inspire our heroes. Or our hearers, I should say. Now, if you're here for the first time with us, You've already gathered in my first five minutes. I don't fit that exciting category. In fact, a, a popular approach to preaching is summed up in the title of a book on preaching, 30 Minutes to Raise the Dead. And the idea is the preacher needs to preach in a way to get people fired up for another week, and then their spiritual tanks get low after another week in a fallen world and you come back together and you do it again. I intentionally do not do that. And the reason is I believe that your inspiration, your excitement about God should come from the truth about God and the gospel and that message rather than the messenger. But I must admit it's tempting for me, as with other preachers, to try to compensate for the lack of preparation by creating an experience for the congregation. After all, most of us have heard this truth over and over so much that we can easily take it for granted. And so we need to be prodded and urged and stimulated. Now take, for example, the words in our passage this morning. Verses 38 and 39 of Romans 8. And please look at your Bible. We pass the Bibles out so that everybody has one. So you either have it on your phone app or you've got it. 
And if you're one of the phone people, I trust you that you're not texting or checking a score. <laughs> Romans 8, 38. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, how does that affect you? You see, how we experience something is dependent on our preparation for it. And my concern is that we have heard about God's love so often and we've been shaped by our culture to such an extent that we esteem ourselves so highly that the impact of God's love for us is almost lost. We've been assured that God loves us so much and we see ourselves in fact as quite lovable that it does not impact us in the way that it did the great Apostle Paul who penned those words. And so we need to prepare ourselves a bit more so that we can experience this great truth as it's intended. And so let me remind you of some things. I remind you, first of all, that John 3.16 is not the first verse in the Bible. You see, one of the reasons we don't marvel at God's love for us is that we fail to see that love against the backdrop of what the Bible teaches about God, about us, and our adversarial relationship with Him. Let me remind you, friends, that the Bible begins with God and not us. In the beginning, God. From its very first words, the Bible is telling whose story it's about. It's a story about and the revelation of God. In all it says and all the stories it records, it's first telling us who God is. From the very first chapter, the Bible establishes what we call the cre creator-creature distinction. God comes first. We are made in that very first chapter of the Word of God, in His image, not He in ours. We were made for Him, not He for us. He owns us by right of creation. And this God is good amazingly good to his creatures. But the opening chapters of the Bible tell us that we sinned, we rebelled against God. Notice, we sinned, you and me. Don't pass over that lightly. We sinned against our good and wise creator. This is how the Bible starts. It's about him. And we did that. Jonathan Edwards preached what is considered by many to be the most famous sermon ever in the English language, titled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. God is angry because we have sinned. Our relationship with him is estranged because of our sin. I'm going to read for you a lengthy portion of Edwards' sermon. He said, The God that holds you over the pit of hell, 
Much as one who holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell the last night, that you were suffered to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there's no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you have not gone to hell since you have sat here in the house of God, provoking His pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending His solemn worship. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you did not this very moment drop down into hell. O sinner, consider the fearful danger that you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of that God whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. And you have no interest in any mediator and nothing to lay hold of to save yourself, nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing you have ever done, nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. Your wickedness makes you as if it were heavy as lead and to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf. And your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence and best contrivance and your righteousness would have no influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. Now, he described the situation for every one of us before we came to Jesus. And now that we're prepared to experience Romans 8, 38, let's read that again. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, how we experience something is dependent on our preparation for it. And we go right to God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And we skip over who this God is. 
and that he was here first and that he is holy and righteous and that we have rebelled against him so that we then view in amazement the fact that God loves us. The first time the word love is used in the Bible is in Genesis 22. In a story known to most of us about Abraham and his son Isaac, but a story that took place at least 2,000 years after the first man and first woman were created and sinned and banished from God's presence. The Bible says in Genesis 22, 2,000 years later, after the creation, God said to Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. Now, this is talking, of course, about Abraham's love for Isaac. But we know that the Bible later uses that as a picture of God's love for his son and the giving up of his one and only son, his love for his son, and in turn, through that, demonstrating his amazing love for us. And so we get John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Now, we just go over that quickly. We memorized it as kids. God so loved the world that he gave. But look, God loved, and I want you to see what God loved, the world. And when it says the world, we get the idea that it means God loves everybody in, on the earth. He loves the whole world. He's got the whole world in his hands, all of that. But see, the word world in your New Testament is the Greek word cosmos. And it's used in negative terms throughout the Bible. This same John who wrote John 3.16 wrote 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15. Do not love the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father but from the world, the world and its desires pass away. He that would be a friend of the world, James 4.4, 4, hates God. James 1.27, pure religion that God our Father accepts is this, to care for widows and orphans in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do you see, friends? God so loved the world. God so loved a world that has its own values and arrangement that is in opposition to him and has been since the Garden of Eden. And yet, despite that, God loved. Abraham loved his son, then we reason. God loves his son, so those are parallel, right? Well, no. Because not only, God not only gave his son, God did that for people who didn't love him. Us. Abraham did it out of obedience. We know that God spared Isaac's life. But Abraham was willing to do that out of obedience. God did it out of amazing love. The Bible always first reminds us of our condition before God, before it goes to God's love. And it does that in order for us to be continually amazed that God would love us. 
You see, John 3.16, this is profound what I'm going to tell you, John 3.16 is preceded by John 1 and 2. And in John chapter 1 and verse 11, we're told about Jesus, and it says, He came to His own, but His own did not receive Him, did not welcome Him. He came to people who did not want Him. And then you have the beginning of John chapter 3, the dialogue between Jesus and you remember a man named Nicodemus. A man who was steeped in his own self-righteousness. He didn't need Jesus. Jesus tells him, I tell you, except you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. And it's in that context that John comments after Jesus' dialogue in Jesus' words, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. You have that pattern in the book of John. You have that pattern in Ephesians. We often quote, in fact, I was saved. I came to the Lord Jesus when I was in my bedroom reading Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and thus not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. What a marvelous passage. Ah, but friends, the first three verses of that chapter, Ephesians 2, tell us that we were all by nature children of God's wrath that we were dead in our sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. The Bible always reminds us of our condition before it tells us about God's love. This book of Romans, we're in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapters 1 through 3. Read that if you want to be cheered up sometime. The wrath of God, verse 18 of Romans 1, is being revealed against the godlessness of men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. And then it goes on to catalog how humanity descends into sin. In chapter 2, it goes on to say Jews and Gentiles, everybody in the world fits this description, whether you're religious or not. And then you come to that catalog in chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. And it gives you a description of quotations from the first part of the Bible that tell us that there's no one who does good, no, not one. There's no one righteous, not even one. It tells us about our sin so that against that backdrop, we will see the beauty of God's love. For God's love to be amazing, it must be seen against the backdrop of sin. That's one reason that God allowed sin into His world to display, to display the full panoply of His character qualities, His attributes. In fact, in Romans chapter 9, it says, God did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he also called. God did this, that is, God allowed sin in the world. God allows that in order to demonstrate his mercy for us. But without that backdrop, we don't see it. So the Bible starts with God's authority and, yes, with God's goodness, but then sin and then God's love. Friends, when we start with love and only speak of love, we minimize it as it's not seen against the backdrop of our undeserving nature. In chapter 5 of Romans, Paul said famously, 
God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, instead of a famous, in my mind, infamous tract with the four spiritual laws that starts, God loves you and has this wonderful plan for your life, instead of that, here's what the Bible is saying. God loves you despite you. God loves us despite the fact that we are rebels and sinners against him. And so evangelism, when you're giving somebody the gospel and starting with something like God loves you, and I want you to know, the first thing I want you to know is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, here's the first thing you need to know. God made you and he owns you. And you've rebelled against him. I have a book here on evangelism called Tell the Truth. Uh, I bought five copies of this to put in our resource center so I could tell you if you want a copy, they're in our resource center. And then I forgot to bring them today. <laughs> they're in my car that I didn't drive here today. So they'll be in the resource center next week. But if you want to know something about how to share the gospel with people, this is a terrific book. Tell the Truth, it's called, by Will Metzger. He's got a chart in here, and he contrasts a man-centered approach with a God-centered approach to evangelism. He has a number of just extremely helpful and insightful things that he says there. Here's the very first one. A man-centered approach has a view of God that makes the point of contact with non-Christians God's love. God loves you. Therefore, he says, God's authority is secondary. A God-centered approach, the point of contact with non-Christians is creation. God made you. Therefore, God has authority over your destiny. So I encourage you to read that. I encourage you to consider that. And we have an outline inserted in your program, as we do each week. And if you were here with us last week, you know that I started... In Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39, but I only made it to verse 35. And so you see grayed out the first four points of the message, and that was from last week, that no one, in verses 31 through 34, no one can stop God's purpose for his people. No thing can God withhold from his people. No one can alter God's verdict regarding his people. No one can overturn God's verdict regarding his people. And then fifthly, and today, no one and no thing can diminish God's love for his people. With that background, verse 35 asks, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And Paul, who wrote this, asks, who shall separate us? But then he follows it with a list of what's. In fact, seven what's. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? So they're not who's, they're, they're what's. Why does he do that? Why does he say who shall separate us and then says, what about all these things? They're not people. Well, behind those things is often people who perpetrate them, Satan who instigates them, and God who allows them. And so when those kinds of things happen, it is our natural bent for us to then question, does God love me when trouble comes, when hardship comes, when persecution comes? 
Why is God allowing this? You've said that. You may be saying that in your circumstances even now. Maybe God doesn't love me after all. And so Paul is making sure that you understand that there is nothing, no thing, and no one who can diminish God's love for his people. There are people who perpetrate them, Satan instigates, and God allows those. It's the reason that people who don't even believe in God get angry at their circumstances. Think about that. Angry at situations. And you're angry because you know, because every person knows there's a true and living God there is no such thing as a true philosophical atheist, and they know that there's someone behind that, there's someone who could have stopped that, there's someone who could have arranged it differently, and so they're angry that he didn't. Who shall separate us? Because behind all the what's is always a who. Who shall separate us? The word for separate, <clears throat> excuse me, is the same word that's used in Matthew 19. When Jesus was speaking of marriage and divorce, and he said, therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Let no man divorce. Who shall divorce us from the love of Christ? And friends, this is not referring to, listen, we're going to make it to heaven. So despite all of the junk that's going on in your life and goes on in the lives of God's people, just know this, you're going to make it to heaven. That's certainly true. God is going to finish His work in us. That's all part of this passage. But it's not just that. This is speaking of the here and now and the benefits of His love that are still given, come what may, to His people in the midst of those things. So I say in your outline, adversity in life cannot do it. Adversity. Who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Adversity can't do it. Verse 35, shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. Trouble includes every kind of trouble or evil. This hardship is an inward feeling when difficulties reduce us to such an extreme that we don't know what course to pursue. So trouble is just anything of evil that comes. Hardship is this internal, inward feeling that we just don't know what to do. We're caught. Persecution speaks of the violence by which the children of God are undeservedly harassed by the ungodly. Shall any of those separate us? Paul's intended answer is no, as we'll see. In fact, he gives an emphatic no. None of that's going to separate us. Or, he goes on, famine or nakedness, <clears throat> lack of food or lack of clothing. Even if we didn't have the basic necessities of life, would that be an indication that we've been separated from the love of God? Or that we're in imminent, at imminent risk for living for Christ. And not just at imminent risk, but we might actually be killed, the sword danger, and sword. So we might have the risk of death on the one hand and the experience of it on the other. Shall any of these separate us from the love of God in the thing, in the trouble, in the hardship, 
in the persecution, with the famine, the nakedness, the danger, the sword, shall the love of God be diminished in the midst of any of that? Verse 36, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. The reason Paul includes that is in order for us to be reminded that far from these kinds of things being an indication of a diminishing of the love of God for His people, far from that, this has been the case with God's people forever. Because that's a quotation. Do you see that in verse 36? It is written, and it's a quotation from the book of Psalms, written a thousand years earlier. And it says this, For your sake we face death all day long, considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Psalm 44 and verse 22 is quoted to show that suffering has always been part of the experience of God's people, and yet this is a God who constantly loves His people even in the midst of all of that. So what about these then seven things and others that could be added since that list could be considerably lengthened? These are real sufferings, unpleasant, demeaning, painful, hard to bear, challenging to our beliefs. And the one who wrote this, Paul, knew what he was talking about because he himself had experienced all of them and worse. So he's not just speaking in the abstract. God's love for you is constant even though you don't deserve it. He's not speaking in the abstract. He went through all this stuff. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he recounts his own experiences. Here's what he says. I have been in prison, been flogged, been exposed to death again and again, Five times I received 40 lashes minus one. That is, I was brought to the very point of death. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all of the churches. Now get this, friends. Paul goes through that stuff. And his amazement at the abiding love of God for him is not diminished at all. He writes for us Romans chapter 8. Now perhaps the Roman Christians to whom he wrote the letter of Romans were also having to endure similar kinds of trials. Indeed, a few years later, when they, they, would, they would, as they were burned as living torches, torches for the sadistic entertainment of Nero, the Roman emperor. Now, those of us who have never had to suffer physically for Christ should, from time to time, read verses 35 to 39, but read those along another set of verses 35 to 39. Hebrews chapter 11, just coincidentally, providentially, Hebrews 11, verses 35 through 39 Speak of God's people having to go through these kinds of things, not just the great apostle. And here's what it says. 
There were those who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. And then it says these were all commended for their faith. Now, I just got to stop here. And again, I've got to kick as I go the health and wealth and prosperity people. These were all commended for their faith. And yet that was what they experienced. And you're going to stand before people and lie to them and tell them that if you have faith, then you will be prosperous and things will go well for you. A lie from the pit of hell. So can pain, misery, and loss separate Christ's people from His love? Absolutely not. Verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. More than conquerors. Again, it's one of those phrases you can just read. We're more than conquerors. It sounds poetic. We've had it read. You can cross-stitch it and hang it up. More than conquerors. I mean, isn't conqueror good enough? Being a conqueror, the, the Greek word that's translated here, more than conquerors, it means super victors, super conquerors. That's why it's translated more than conquerors. See, it's not just that we will overcome and we'll win in the end. That's absolutely true. We win. We win. God's people win because God wins. But it's more than that. We're more than conquerors because the victory includes the very things that God allows into our lives. You see, God's not absent in the stuff. God is in the stuff and at work in His people to accomplish His purpose in the trouble, in the persecution, in the hardship, the famine, the nakedness, the danger, the sword, in all of that, He's at work. So we're not just going to win in the end the very things that God allows and the things that would cause us to question God's love are the very things that God uses us to conform us to the image of Jesus, which you remember was the goal back in verse 29. He foreknew us and he's predestined us and called us and justified us and he's going to glorify us, but he's done all of this so that we might be conformed to the image of his son. And then we come to verse 38. I then am convinced that all of these things, none of them can separate us from the love of God. And we're going to bounce through that list and be done. But Paul says, I am convinced, I am persuaded, I have an absolute conviction that none of this can happen. He's experienced all that he's experienced. He knows all that he knows. And come what may, come hell or high water, not only is the love of God not diminished, it's enhanced because His love is with me and working through me and in me 
in everything that He allows me to experience. So I'm convinced, persuaded, convicted. I have a conviction that this is true. So, dear friend, what do you believe? What do you believe about God in the midst of the stuff you're going through? You get angry at God? You're going to get angry at God? The God who loves you despite you? The God who sent Jesus to die for you? The God who is moving heaven and earth for you? The God who is at work in every one of these adverse things in order to accomplish his purpose in you? Adversity cannot diminish God's love. The adversity in life, and then I say in your outline, the diversity, the diversity of life cannot do it. And in verses 38 and 39, Paul gives this list that we've read, and that list includes, first of all, no state of being. I mean, death nor life. What else could be included? (laughs) What could be excluded? Death nor life. In whatever state of being we're in, alive or dead or in the process of dying and it's imminent, no matter, I'm convinced, says Paul. So there's no state of being in which you could ever be separated from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And then secondly, there's no spiritual being. No state of being, but no spiritual being. Neither angels nor demons. Angels, perhaps referring to good angels. Demons, probably meaning, definitely meaning evil angels or demons. There aren't any holy angels, any of the good angels that could say to God, Hey God, really caring for your holiness the way I do, I just don't think that he, Brown, ought to be part of your people. I don't think you ought to bring him up here when he dies. No angel can say that and persuade God. And no demon could successfully alter our eternal glory. There's no state of being. There's no spiritual being. Now, friends, that would be enough for me. But Paul goes on. Thirdly, no time period, nor things present, nor of the future. Nothing here and now in the age of time and nothing in the future in eternity. So no state of being, no spiritual being, and no age, neither time nor eternity. No dimension of time and no dimension of eternity can ever ever separate us. And so... If you're feeling good about it now, you need to understand that whatever happens tomorrow, next week, next year, isn't going to change any of this. Fourthly, no powerful person. He says, no powers. No mighty works done by Satan or whomever. No mighty severing power, breaking the purpose of God, shattering the chain that God says is going to happen. I foreknew you, predestined you, called you, justified you. I'm going to glorify you. Nothing can keep that from happening and my love abiding with you all the way through it. No particular place. Number five. Neither height nor depth. In all likelihood referring to heaven and hell. 
From one end of the universe to the other, from one end of heaven to the other, there is nothing that can separate us. And then, just in case someone might get picky about it and say, well, you know, he missed something. At the end, he says, or anything else in all creation. Okay, does that cover everything? And that's why number six is no one and no thing. There was a little girl, and she was in England, and she was at a street corner, and she wanted to cross over to the street, other side of the street. She was standing there on this busy street, and she was trembling a bit. And a police officer took a look over and happened to see the fear on her face, and he walked over, and he reached down, and he took her hand in his hand, and they began to make their way across the street. And as they were, the trucks were zooming by. And when one of them would come, she would flinch and she would draw back. But that police officer would hold onto her hand and they got across in safety. The point of that illustration is this. It's not our grasp of the Lord that matters. It's His grasp of us. A little poem says it this way. Let me no more my comfort draw from my frail grasp of thee. Let me henceforth rejoice with awe in thy strong grasp of me. And that's what we Christians are. We've been given to understand ourselves. We've been given faith. We've been given justification. We've been given great hopes. And we've been given the assurance of the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ with us to the very end. It's something that we've been given and will sustain us and take us safely through. Nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so your take-home truth is this. The love of God for His people is all that matters all the time. Now, we're going to bow and pray. But notice throughout that outline... In that take-home truth, all of this applies to His people. If you're not one of His people, these promises don't apply to you. But that can be changed because you can become one of His people now. You can be brought into His family in this moment. But you've got to realize that you're one of those sinners like me, like all of us that I described earlier. You recognize that God has done what the only thing that can be done to remedy your sin and give you a relationship with Him. He sent Jesus to live the life that you should have lived and died the death that you deserved. And so you repent. Lord, I'm no longer going to go my way. I'm going to go your way. When we bow and pray, you receive Jesus Christ into your life. Acknowledge your sin in your own words to Him from your heart. Acknowledge that you're a sinner. Say, I believe Jesus died for my sin. I ask you to forgive me. I'm going to follow you with my life. I ask you to save me. And he promises to do so. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the profound reminder in your word of your love for your people. Lord, help us to be people who see it for the amazing love that it is. Because we regularly remind ourselves of how pure, how holy, how righteous you are. And that we are sinful. That contrary 
to our psychologized culture that tells us to affirm our self-esteem and tells us that we are better than we are. Help us to look to your word for an accurate picture of who we are so that we see that love in all of its beauty. Thank you, Lord, for loving me. Thank you for loving us. Because you have first loved us, we love you. Help us then to live like that. Help us to live in the joy that comes from knowing your love, the security of knowing your love. And I ask you to draw some out of the world and to yourself in this sacred moment. Move upon their hearts. Cause them to see that they are nothing outside of you, that you are everything and everything they need. Help them to acknowledge their sin, you as the Savior, and give their lives to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to stand in just a moment for our closing song. Just before we do, we have one who's looking to join our church. Bruce, are you out there? Where's Bruce? There he is. This is Bruce Mason. And Bruce has been our guest at our church for most of this year, since about January, I think, taking a good look at our church, praying about where the Lord would have him to grow and serve. He's decided this is the place, and we're very glad about that, having gotten to know Bruce over these months. He has a real desire to grow in the Lord. We want to help him with that. We look forward to him helping us in uh, his ministry here as well. So Bruce has come for membership. We've heard his testimony of salvation, of baptism. He signed our membership covenant. He's jumped through all the hoops. So we're recommending him for membership. All of those in favor of receiving Bruce into our membership signify by saying amen. Amen. Any opposed, say no. All right, then uh, Bruce is going to be in Cafe Community like the rest of you out in the lobby. And as you're going around with your coffee and bagels, make sure that you come by and tell Bruce a welcome into our church, all right? Glad you're here. Let's stand for our closing song.